If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We're continuing our, our walk through Ephesians, and, and we've been in chapter 4. This will be the, the third week now. And so the sermon title has been easy these past several weeks because all of this chapter is built on verse 1 of chapter 4, which, in which Paul urges the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they've been called. And so it's all about walking worthy. What does it look like for a Christian to walk worthy of their calling? And so we saw in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4, walking worthy meant maintaining the unity, the oneness. So there's a oneness that characterizes the body, that... that that walking worthy is maintaining that. And then we saw last week in verses 7 through 16 that walking worthy meant pursuing maturity, maturity together through, specifically through mutual ministry, that every member is a minister that's been put in the body in order to, to bring the body to maturity, to, to help the body grow up. And then this week we're going to see walking worthy. We're going to look at verses 17 through 24. And now Paul's going to say that walking worthy is putting off the old self and putting on the new self. That's what walking worthy looks like, and so we're going to look at that. And then, uh, a spoiler alert, next week is going to be walking worthy part 4, where the, the 25 through 32 of chapter 4, where he gets, he gets into the weeds of the specifics of putting off, putting on. And so, Lord willing, next week, we'll, we'll finish chapter 4 with, with the last emphasis that, that Paul makes in, in walking worthy. Well, so this week in part three, here as we focus on verses 17 through 24, Paul's main argument, it, it, it's really simple. He, he's simply going to argue that becoming a Christian or learning Christ is the word that he's going to use. Becoming a Christian makes a difference in one's life. That, that's his main idea. The way of Christ, Paul's going to argue, leads to real, noticeable, actual change. And that change, though grounded in the work that God's done through us in Christ, is a work, according to Paul, that we are called to do. So Paul's going to say, put off and put on. And so as a Christian, walking worthy is, is doing this, is working at this. And so if, if, if you're taking notes, uh, if you're in here, boys and girls, and, and you, can write, you can write this sentence. The Christian walk is distinct from the world's walk. The Christian walk is distinct from the world's walk. That's his point. That learning Christ, being united to Him, becoming a Christian, changes your life so that you're different than you used to be. And so the, the Christian walk is distinct or different from the world's walk. So let, let's read our passage. So if you have your Bibles, look there in Ephesians chapter 4. And as I read, I'm going to read verse, verses 17 through verse 32, but we're going to focus on, on 17 through 24. But I'm going to start there in verse 17. So you can follow along as I read. Now this I say, and I testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Verse 20, but that is not the way that you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and it is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. 
Verse 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. Now, Father, we, we ask that this, this word, that this reading and this teaching would, would benefit us as your people, we confess that we, we need your word, we need to be sharpened, and we need to be reminded, and we need to be conformed more and more into the image of Christ who is our Lord. And so, so I pray, we pray that this, this, this word would be shaping in our lives. And it's in Christ's name, amen. So we're going to focus here on verses 17 through 24, and, and as Paul seeks to promote the Ephesians to walk worthy of their calling, he does so by telling them in verses 17 through 19, how they, how they must not walk. So he says, you can't walk this way. He says, here's, here's what you don't do, but he doesn't leave it there, right? That, that would be incomplete. Don't do this, right? It's, it's always helpful to say, instead, do this. So negatively, don't do this, but here's positively, do this. And so he says, don't do this, don't live this way, but instead, do this. Don't walk like Gentiles, but instead, walk after Christ, which is what he does in verses 20 through 24. So that, the outline is really simple. We're going to see the way of the Gentiles in verses 17 through 19, and then we're going to see the way of Christ in verses 20 through 24. So let's start there. If you have your Bibles, keep them open, and we're going to spend time looking here. So, so looking there first in verses 17 through 19, the way of the Gentiles. So as Paul starts here, that he's describing the way of the Gentiles. This section could easily also be called the way in which you, in what, in which you all once lived. Right, so remember, he's writing to, to Gentiles who have become Christians. And so, so he's saying, remember the way in which you once lived. Right, so, so Paul, he is going to widen this gap between the Gentiles and the Christians, but he doesn't, he doesn't do so so that the Christians can look with disdain upon the non-Christians and say, ha, look at those evil people, greeted to do all kinds of evil, impure people. That he doesn't widen the gap so that he can elevate the Christians and to look down on the Christians. That's not what he does. That's not why he does it. I mean, that's a, that's a typical Christian temptation, right? I, I'm proud. I'm, I'm not like those other people. Thank you, God, that I'm different. That's not what Paul's doing here. Instead, Paul winds this gap so that the Ephesian Christians will recognize just how far God's grace has brought them. And he does so that it might produce humility and thankfulness for the grace of God in their life. So he says, look, remember where you once were. Don't live like that anymore, but, but remember, you once were like that. And so to, to, to produce thankfulness in their hearts, but also to produce compassion for those still living there, because they know what it's like, because they've just come from that way of life. And so here in verses 7, 17 through 19, he highlights, here's the way of the Gentiles. So look there at verse 17. I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And so Paul says, don't walk like the Gentiles. You must no longer do that. Now, first thing, right, first things first, maybe you see the word Gentiles and you think, well, well wait a minute, how's that possible? Right? After all, Paul has said, even in the same letter, that they are Gentiles. And he, he's done a whole lot of teaching on the Jew-Gentile being reconciled. 
And so he's called them Gentiles, and now he's saying, don't live like Gentiles. How is that possible? Well, Paul here uses the term Gentile. It's not an ethnic reference. This is a moral reference. So the Gentiles had a way of life. It it might be able to be said similarly, maybe, but if someone said, don't live like an American anymore, right? Americans, we we have a a reputation of living a certain way. It's kind of like this Gentiles, this was the Gentile way, and it was not godly. And so he's saying, don't live like the Gentiles, they're still Gentiles, yes, but, but their life, they're, they're not part of this third group. They're, they're Gentile Christians, so, so they're Christians who are Gentiles. And so it's like Paul saying, you once were Gentiles who live like Gentiles, but, but now I'm telling you, you must be Gentiles who live like Christians, because you're not Gentiles in that sense anymore. So he says, don't walk like the Gentiles. Now, now he's, not, he's not talking about their, their cadence or their steps or how they put one foot in front of the other. Right? This, this term walk, while, while it is a verb that's often used for literal walking, it's also used to describe behavior, how one conducts himself or, or how one lives their life. So if you have the NIV, uh, Paul says, you must no longer live as the Gentiles. So, so it's more than just walking, right? This is one's way of life. He says, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Paul wants the, these Christians, he wants their attitudes and their conduct to be, become sharply differentiated from the non-Christian Gentiles, the Greeks and the Romans uh, among whom they're living. He's saying, you're different than them. So don't live like them anymore. So, so how do they live? How does, he, how does he continue? Notice there at the end of verse 17 how he describes the way that the Gentiles live. He says they walk in the futility of their minds or the vanity of their thinking, some translations say. So, so Paul defines the, the Gentile or, or non-Christian way of living as a result of futile thinking, which means futile, empty, purposeless this is the thinking that characterizes this life that Paul's calling them not to pursue. So notice he, he focuses on, on their minds. Right? So, so the issue is located in their minds, in their thinking. So, so Paul's primary concern, I mean, I think this is important, his primary concern is not with a list of sins. So say, stop doing this and this and this. He says, no, no, their thinking is corrupt. It's a distortion and a disorientation of the mind it goes deeper than just what they're doing. It, it, the problem is with the, how they think, their mindset. Yes, it leads to distorted actions, but at its root, the issue is the Gentile way of thinking, their futility of mind. I mean, this is reiterated by how Paul continues there at the beginning of verse 18. So he says, they, referring to the Gentiles, they are darkened in their understanding. Again, that's a, that's a mental note. They're darkened in their understanding. This section, as you read commentators, a lot of commentators are going to, describe, are going to compare this section with, with a section in Romans chapter 1, where Paul describes the life of the unrighteous. And in, in Romans chapter 1, it's life of the unrighteous. Well, here it's, it's the Gentiles. But there in Romans 1.21, Paul describes the unrighteous as futile in their thinking. And he says that their foolish hearts are darkened. So again, the, the, the language is similar. And the, the, the similar language points to the same point, that the non-Christian life, the Gentile life that Paul's commanding Christians not to live is a life that's dark, that, that's, that's shaded, it's foolish. I, I mean, an image that, that, that may capture this, it's like going through life with blinders on. So, so you're just like in shadows, like, what, what's going on? I don't understand. I can't see what's coming. I can't understand my surround. I just, I just, I'm, just, I'm just here trying to feel my way through. In that case, nothing makes sense. You can't interpret anything because everything's dark. You can't see distinctions. 
And really, there's no purpose. And it's primarily because, and this is what I think Paul would say here and in Romans 1, the point is that the Gentile life, right, by its very nature, it exists and it functions apart from God. Right? It exists and it functions apart from even concern for God. It is a godless life. That's the Gentile life. And, and that's how, remember, the Ephesians used to live. They had no idea who Jesus was. They're just living their lives. And then in comes this Apostle Paul who talks about this, this Jesus and this God. Right? And so, but at that time, they were separated. They had no idea what the gospel was, who Jesus was. They didn't know about this, this covenant of promise and, and God's dealings with the patriarchs and his sending of the Messiah. They were without hope and without God in the world, as Paul reminded them in chapter 2. These Gentiles are darkened in their understanding. I mean, that, that's how he describes it, a, a darkened understanding. They do not, in fact, they cannot know the truth. They're blinded. They're blinded by sin and darkness. I mean, I mean at this time, a common idea was that, that light was, was the symbol for understanding. It's what we mean when we say, oh, I was talking and then the light just came on. Right? The older you get, maybe you hear that more often. Remember, your light's not always on. But, but the idea is that light brings understanding or clarity. And, and so here in Ephesians, Paul, in Paul's world, in this context, light was not symbolic of, of simply understanding, but life in connection with God. And so when the light's on is when you're living in relationship with God. And so saying that Gentile life is dark. It, it, it's separated from God. It, it's disconnected from the source of light. In life, So that when Paul says the Gentiles are darkened in their understanding, he means that, that their, their, their life, their, their understanding of, of all the world is devoid of God. Which is exactly how Paul continues. They're alienated from the life of God. And he says that right there in verse 18. Separated or alienated from the life of God. They don't know God. They don't acknowledge God. Their lives are formed, are not formed by God and his demands. They're, they're left fumbling with, with inane triviality, tri, trivialities and worthless side issues, one commentator says. Right? So, so as Paul said, this, this, this group of people, these Gentiles, are dead in sins and trespasses. And the fundamental problem is they don't know God, nor do they know the life that comes from God. And so, so he continues, verse 18, they're alienated from life. They don't know God. And then he continues, because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of hearts. And so he says, they're alienated from God because of, here's a cause, because of the source, the reason, because of the ignorance that is in them. It's their ignorance. It's the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of hearts. Now again, this is a, an important point that is made also in Romans chapter 1. These Gentiles are filled with an ignorance of God. They're ignorant. However, that ignorance, and this is, what, this is what's important to understand, that ignorance is something that they are culpable for. They're, it's a culpable ignorance. It's not an ignorance that, oh, you're off the hook. It doesn't matter if you continue living your life apart from God. It doesn't matter. You're, you're ignorant of him, but it's okay. No, this is an ignorance that's culpable. And there's a phrase in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, where Paul says that they are without excuse. That's a really important phrase. They're without excuse. And so what Paul says in Romans 1 and here in Ephesians chapter 4 is that the, the non-Christian, right, the Gentile, looks around, sees this world, sees all of creation, sees all of humanity, sees all these, these signs and pointers to, to a, a logical creation, to someone who's put this world together, and they look around 
and God's attributes are on display for all to see clearly, and they look around and they say, nope, no God. Though everything in me screams he's real and he exists, I'm not believing it. I'm not buying it. And so they say, though they know that there is a God because the evidence is clear, they know in their heart that God exists. They know that there's a God to whom they owe their allegiance. But despite that, these Gentiles willingly reject the plain testimony of creation and refuse to accept that there's a God. And so they're culpable. They ought to know because evidence screams. And so it's a culpable ignorance. They refuse to acknowledge. They're alienated from the life of God because they're culpably ignorant of him and his ways. There's a refusal to acknowledge him. Not only that, he, he explains further, it's the, their hearts that are hard. It's as though no communication from God can get through. Right? It's a hard heart. Nope, I, I'm not listening. It's like I, I'm closing my eyes and plugging my ears and making noise. I, I don't care what God says to me. I'm not listening. It's a hardness a refusal to acknowledge him. And they've set themselves up deliberately to refuse any of God's testimony to them. And so after describing the Gentiles in the way of life in verse 18, right, as a darkened mind and a hard heart, notice how Paul continues in verse 19. And so it becomes clear, he, he starts with the mind and then the heart. So what starts in the mind eventually makes its way into actions. Right? So as one commentator says, an obstinate rejection of the truth of God is the beginning of a terrible downward path. And so if your mind is distorted, if your thinking is darkened, yes, it makes sense that all that you do is going to be subject or influenced by that distorted thinking. So verse 19, yep, that's the case. Verse 19, they've become callous. They've given themselves up, up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. This, this is the downward spiral. They're callous. They've lost all sensitivity. I mean, it's like maybe if you've played guitar. Right? When you start learning guitar, right, the, the tips of your finger, it really hurts to play guitar, to press down the chords. Right? It's not easy. If you see Kevin up here doing anything, it's easy. It's not because it, it hurts. And when you're learning, it stings when you're pressing it down. But over time, what happens is calluses form. So that there's, there's a hardness that forms on the tips of your finger. So it's real easy. You're callous because you don't feel it. Right? You're callous. You don't feel, you're not sensitive in your fingertips anymore so you can play the guitar. Well, Paul's point here is that these Gentiles don't feel any sense of conviction, any sense of conscious objection or any moral reservations. They just give themselves over to whatever they want to do. And they, they couldn't care less about, about consequences or conscience. Thus, they plunge themselves into all kinds of degrading activities. And so it's just a free-for-all. Do whatever you want, right? This is our culture. Live however you want, right? Your desire, let that guide you, and there will be no consequences. If you, if you step on my desires and my rights, whatever the, whatever the realm is, right, I can do whatever I want, and no one can stop me. Right? It's, a, it's a giving over to all types of impurity and sensuality, and at the heart of all this Gentile activity, and one of Paul's main points here is that these Gentiles who do not know Christ betray an obsessive propensity to live for themselves. Right? So, so I don't care who's, who's Lord. I'm in control. I'm on the throne. I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to be led by my passions, my desires. And that's the life that characterizes the Gentiles that Paul is saying, you can't do that anymore. You must not live that way. 
Your life must not be driven by a desire to please yourself anymore. And Paul explains it. They've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. They, they cannot, I, that language, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. They, they cannot get enough. NIV says, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge every kind of impurity. Or, or the New American Standard, they've given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. And so it's this insatiable desire. I, I can't get enough. I'm, I'm, I'm going headlong into all of these things. And this is the way that the Gentiles live. It's, and it's a result of the loss of relation to God. And, and it leads to uncontrolled, outrageous, sinful behavior that is not godly. They don't know God, which means they don't worship Him. And so they give themselves over to whatever they want, and they worship themselves. And so Paul's point, the Gentile life is characterized by certain things, right? The Gentile life is, is only concerned about themselves and, and, and pleasing self. And it's not at all concerned about God. But... And this is where Paul transitions, transition verse 20. But Paul wants them to realize that, that the Christian life is not compatible. So, so this is the way of life that you used to live. But something's happened. So that's verse 20 of Ephesians 4. That's, that's the transition. You must not live like that anymore because something has happened. And so Paul writing to the, these Christians at Ephesus, that's not you, folks. That's not you anymore. You're not in the dark anymore. The blinders are off. So Paul wants them to know something has happened. Your eyes have been opened. You actually know God now. You're alive. You've been changed. You once were far off, but now you're brought near. You've been united to Jesus. And Paul wants to say, that changes everything. That's a point he's going to make. Knowing Jesus changes how you live so that how you used to live isn't okay anymore. That's the point he's going to make in verses 20 through 24. He's going to say, here's the way of Christ. He's going to call them to that. We're going to turn that to that in a second. But, but first, let me just make one point of application here from this first section. And, and I, I just simply want to pause and, and focus on the Gentile mind and life or the connection between the Gentile mind and life because I think it's an important connection that Paul makes here because he does make it a connection between the mind and the life. And so the non-Christian life so, 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 so the non-Christian life is not this con collection of unconnected actions. Every action, every self-focused deed is connected to, and I would say driven by, a mindset, a way of thinking. And it's the way of thinking that is natural to the fallen man. Right? The, the nature of man since the fall, every one of us, our natural state is fallen. So that we're turned in on ourselves and all we can do is live for ourselves. And so that is the mindset of every person that's ever born in this world. It is bent on themselves. If you have kids, you know that. Right? They want what they want when they want it. And if you don't comply, they'll scream and make your life miserable. That's natural. I rule the world. Right? All the parents of young ones say amen. amen. Right? That is the natural world. And those actions are tied to a distorted way of thinking. And the reason I want to point out this, this connection is simply to highlight the drastic work of God that must occur in conversion. Right? This is a total revolution of mind and worldview and thinking that leads to a total transformation of actions. And so it's no small thing for someone to become a Christian. Right? We can't downplay that. Parents, don't assume I'm just going to bring them to kids and, and they'll just get it and they'll grow up being a Christian. 
No, every person born in this world requires a supernatural conversion, a supernatural work of the Spirit in their lives to be saved. And God has to do it. So, so parents, bring your kids to church, but pray for your parents. Plead, play, pray for your kids. Plead with the Lord for your kids. Because if God doesn't save them, you can't just moralize them into Christianity. It is a drastic change. And, it, and, and they're corrupt from inside out, from mind out. It's not impossible for conversion. It's not hopeless. I mean, remember, I don't want to discourage you, but many of the Ephesian Christians, once Gentiles, they were radically converted, so there's hope. right? Some of you here, maybe you can relate to a miraculous work of God in transforming a, a, a total transformation. Maybe you once lived one way, and out of the blue, God transformed you. He converted you, and then your life was never the same. I know some of you. You have those stories. Paul's point is that the mind and the life are connected, and, and to be converted is a total transformation of both. And the last thing I'll, I'll simply say, the last point here, is that there's a futility of life without God. Man, I, I think you should hear that. Man, if you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, I, I say this out of, out of concern for you, out of, out of love for you, but, but as long as you endeavor to live your life on earth apart from God, your life is going to be pointless. I mean, there's no purpose. You're living with blinders on. And I say that because I know what it's like to have life, have the blinders off, and you can too. Life without God is meaningless. It's meaningless. It's pointless. It's futile. You need to know this if you're here and not a Christian because the point is you were created to know God. You were created for God. He created you for his own purposes, to know him and to be in relationship with him. But you, like me, like the rest of us, turned aside, rejected him, said, no, thank you. I'd rather not serve you and love you and know you. We all collectively have turned aside and rejected him. And your default is to pursue life apart from him. And I just want to tell you that left to yourself, you would live your entire life with your blinders on, wandering aimlessly and clumsily in a dark and dulled world. But that's not God's purpose for you. God made you to know him, to live a life filled with purpose and color and sunshine and flowers. Right? That, that's what God created you for. But that only happens when you are restored to him. When relationship is, is restored between you and your creator. And that only happens through faith in Jesus. Right? You had to be saved and reconciled and you cannot do so apart from faith in Jesus. And so, so I'd call you to life this morning. I, I'd call you to faith in Jesus because through him, by way of him, through union with him, you are reconciled to God and you have life abundantly and eternally filled with bright color and purpose. And so I'd just call you, right? Do you feel like your life is purposeless? You just feel like I'm just going through the motions. There's gotta be more. Right? There is more, right? There's more. And his name is Jesus. And so I'd call you to Christ this morning. Life without God is futile. Well, after describing the way of the Gentiles, there in, the, in verses 17 through 19, Paul then turns, on, turns to explain to the Ephesian Christians why. Why the Christian life is not compatible with the Gentile life. And so he's going to say, it's different. You must not do this. Here's what you must do. And so he's going he's gonna, to make this contrast to highlight how they're called to live. So, so look there at verses 20 through 24. He's going to lay out the, the way of Christ. So follow along there in verse 20. 
Ephesians 4 there in verse 20, after describing the life of the Gentiles, Paul says, but that is not the way that you learned Christ, exclamation point, emphasis. That's not what you learned. That's not how you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, which I know you have because I taught you, Paul is saying, assuming you've heard, that's not the way you learned Christ. Paul reminds his readers they've learned a different way, a way that is vastly different from the Gentile way, and Paul says that way is the way of Christ. In other words, because of Christ, because you've come to know him, you are a new person, you have a new identity, new life, and you have a new pattern by which to live. You're not in the dark anymore. And so Paul wants his readers to know that, that learning Christ, that trusting him and following him, it changes things, and it, it redirects the pattern of your life. Knowing Jesus means a new way of living. Understanding this change, it's foundational to our understanding of the gospel. And so Paul's point here in this transition is to say not only that Christians put their faith in Jesus and believe in him for salvation, not only by faith through faith are sinners united to Jesus and made alive, but that's true, but Paul's point is that when you are saved, when you believe in Jesus, that union is just the beginning of a process of learning from Christ. It's a discipleship pattern, a discipleship plan, where when you're united to Christ, you then follow Christ. You're then led by Christ. He is then your teacher. And I think that's what he says. That's not how you learned Christ. He didn't say that's, that's not what you learned about Jesus. That's not the way that Jesus taught. He says that's not how you learned Christ. And so the point is that, that Jesus is their teacher. The way of the Gentiles is incompatible with the Christian life because a Christian learns from Christ. And one who learns from Christ isn't darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, calloused, having given themselves up to sensuality or greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That's not the Christ life. In fact, it's contrary to the Christ life. And so, I mean, I thought of an example. Maybe this will relate to some of you. It's like the person who says, yeah, I'm, a, I'm on a keto diet. Maybe you guys have heard that, the keto diet. Right? So they say, yeah, I'm on keto diet, but, but every day... They're loading up on soda and donuts and bread and pasta and french fries and every other anti-keto food that's out there, right? So, so no matter what they say or no matter what they think, that person is not following the way of keto, right? It, does, it just doesn't match. Paul is saying this similar thing. The way of the Gentiles is com- incompatible with the way of Christ. And so if you've learned from Christ, you don't live this way anymore, And so we have to ask, well, what does it mean to learn Christ? Learning Christ means welcoming him as a living person being shaped by his teaching, submitting to his rule of righteousness and responding to his summons to standards and values completely different than what we once knew. You have new marching orders, you have a new command, you have a new teacher. And learning Christ is welcoming him and saying, I'm following you. Come what may, no matter who betrays me, no matter who disowns me, I'm following you. And so the rest of chapter 4, he's going to give specifics. Paul clearly understands the Christian life to be a life that is continually informed and shaped by the person of Christ, by his teachings. Right? Right? This basic truth that Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. And so the relationship with Christ, the love relationship is, is worked out by obeying him. So learning Christ is, yeah, I'm submitting to your commands. If you love Jesus, if you aim to obey him, you ought to know and be concerned about his commands. And so for the Christian, to learn Christ means that the living Christ teaches him or her and continues to serve as his or her authority. 
So for the rest of this section, in, in verses 22 through 24, Paul is going to lay out the dynamic of what a Christian life looks like. And it's really practical. And so since the, he makes two main points, since the points are really practical, right, I'm going I'm to discuss them in, in terms of applications. And so application point one from this second section is in verse 22, namely, application point, learning Christ means putting off the old self. Learning Christ means putting off the old self. Look there at 22. This is how you learn Christ. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And so when somebody becomes a Christian, they get a new identity, a new creation. They're alive, and it changes them, and that change takes place at the core of their being. Thus, they're not who, what, they're not who they once were. Which is why here in verse 22, Christians are called to put off our old selves. And that only makes sense to put off the old self if there is a new self. Right? That's the only way it makes sense. Put off the old because that's not you anymore. You're new. And so one important thing to note about this dynamic here, because this old self, new self, this putting off, this putting on, right, it's a process. Don't miss that. It's a process. So the way of Christ does not mean that the way of Gentiles is nowhere to be found in you anymore. So don't hear that. So, so the way of Christ does not mean that the way of Gentiles is nowhere to be found in you anymore. It doesn't mean I don't struggle with sin ever anymore. I'm a Christian. That's not what it means. Instead, the way of Christ means that when the way of the Gentile rears its ugly head in your life, you're not okay with it, but you, you endeavor to work, to strive to put it off, to turn from it. Not to, you, so the Gentiles, they freely give themselves over. The way of Christ says when that appears... I'm going to fight with all I can to put that off. Because that's not me anymore. It doesn't mean you don't struggle with it anymore. It is work. It's not easy. Paul says, put it off. And so, so if the old way of life was not a constant source of struggle and temptation for the Christian, there'd be no need for the call to put it off, right? If it just happened, Paul wouldn't say, put it off and put something else on. Because it's a struggle, he says, you got to do this, guys. You got to put off. You got to put on. It's a constant source of struggle and temptation for even Christians. But instead of going headlong into those corrupt desires, the Christian fights and labors and strives against it. And so the way of Christ, as this process is described, it's, it's characterized by a humble diligence when it comes to fighting the old self. So I'm not okay with, with, with pursuing that, with, with old ways rearing their head. I fight them. I strive against them. I mean, in essence, one comment here clarifies, in essence, Paul is calling them to an ongoing process of complete repentance. And this is repentance. So when sin rears its ugly head, you turn from it. You say, I'm going to pursue godliness. I'm going to pursue the alternative. I'm going to pursue a greater pleasure. I'm turning from this and I'm, I'm pursuing this. I'm putting this off and I'm putting this on. So the way of Christ involves putting off the old self. But notice the second application point. There in verses 23 and 24. The learning Christ means putting on the new self. So learning Christ means putting off the old, but it also means putting on the new self. So look there in verse 23. You're into, so verse 23 picks up, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So notice the call to, to put off the old self is preceded, or to put on the new self, I'm sorry, the, the call to pursue to, to put on the new self is preceded by a renewal of mind. Did you notice how he said that there? Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And so Paul's exhortation is, be renewed. Be renewed, he says. 
Right? It's a passive verb, kind of like Romans 12.1, be transformed. It's like, well, how do I do that? Right? I'm passive in that. How do I be renewed? And that's the implication here. This, this renewal must be accomplished by someone else. You can't, you can't renew yourself. He says, be renewed. And the person here that Paul's talking about is the Holy Spirit who's been given to every Christian, which he just talked about earlier in chapter 4. So be renewed in your spirit by the Spirit is his implication. Some translations, maybe your translation words it this way, be renewed by the Spirit in your mind. So some people say it's not the human spirit, but it's be renewed by the Holy Spirit in your mind. Now, I don't think that's the most likely translation, but the point's the same. Namely, the, the renewal is the work of the Spirit. And the sphere of the Spirit's renewing is the person's spirit, the, the inmost being. That's what Paul's saying. Be renewed in your inner being, in your inner person. So in contrast, whereas the way of the Gentiles is a mind that leads one further away from God towards futility, going further and further away, the way of Christ, on the other hand, is, is, what, is a mind that leads one towards God, towards righteousness. And that mind, Paul says, must continually be renewed by the Spirit. And so we put on the new self by being renewed in our minds by the Spirit. It's a call of, to dependence upon the Spirit. It's a work that leads towards an, an increasing pursuit of righteousness and holiness, which is Paul's point there in verse 24. To cause them to be renewed in the spirit of their minds, and to, verse 24, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so here, Paul identifies the pattern of the new self. This is the pattern. This is the trajectory of, of the new life, the course of the way of Christ. That pattern and that trajectory, that course, is, is towards God himself. And so you're not, you're not away from God in the way of the Gentiles, but you're pursuing him. And the new self, right, being made new, being made alive, the, the purpose of the new self is to be, be conformed into the image of Christ. And so the new self is being gradually, slowly, sometimes painfully conformed to the image of Christ. And so the way of, the way of Christ is when, when you have a, an individual put in your path that you think, oh my goodness, I'm not responding the right way to this person, this is a really tough person to love. You don't say, what's wrong with him? You say, okay, why is it hard for me to love someone I'm called to love? God's revealing shortcomings in me that I may put on the new self. Say, the old me would respond this way. But I'm new. I'm not controlled by this. I don't have to give in to my passions. I can, I can love this person. I can pursue them. I can pray for them. Right? So, so, so when, when we're exposed, we don't say, I don't care. I'm just going. I'm going off the handle. I'm pursuing this headlong. No, we say, I'm new. I'm putting on the new self. And that's, that's good news for us, right? We can put on the new self. We're called to be like Christ, and God's going to make sure that we become like Christ. And it's a process to be renewed in our minds and to put on the new self. And the good news for us, one of the keys to understanding Paul's logic here is recognizing right, the relationship between what's already happened to those in Christ and what's yet to happen to those in Christ. Because remember, all in, in chapters 1 through 3, what's already happened for the Christian has been a union with Christ, a union in a life, burial, resurrection, and ascension. So we're united with Christ and we're raised to new life. We're already united to Christ. That's already happened. So a real change has already happened. Right? We are united to Jesus in a death like his and in a resurrection like his and in a life like his. So we're, that's already happened. But until Christ returns or until he calls us home, we're not going to be in practice what we are in reality. That's the tension. That's why until this time comes, we've got to put off the old and put on the new. That's what we're called to do because we're headed this way and we're going to get here one day. 
But until we get there, we can't stop putting off the old and putting on, on the new. Our everyday experience will be a continual struggle with the old self until Christ returns or until he calls us home. But, and here's the good news, here's the good news that as we're aiming to put off the old and put on the new, the good news is that it will be that way then. It will be that way then. The old self will be gone. We'll be clothed, totally new, in practice, holy, like Jesus. It will be that way then. And so in our, in our endeavor now to put off the old and put on the new, we take heart. We have hope. Christ has started the work in you. Christ has promised to, to finish that work, and Christ will bring you all the way home. And so, so we take heart as we put off the old and put on the new. And then next week, we're, we're stopping here a bit abruptly because next week we're going to look really practically what putting off the old and putting on the new likes. And so read ahead if you want. The end of chapter 4, verses 25 through 32. Read ahead. What, what does it look like? Because it gets really practical. And so, so let, us, let us endeavor to put off the old and put on the new um, as, we, as we seek to become like Christ. Let, let's pray as we close.